thanks for coming out this evening, this Wednesday night Bible study. And uh, I think all of us are enjoying this beautiful setting. And uh, I think as much as the setting, the beauty of the room and how it works for us with the food and all, it's equally uh, a blessing because it's of the location. Right here in Vero, you know, we're not having to travel as far. But you need to know, we do have people who travel every weekend from Fort Pierce to church out on 57th. And then we also have uh, people who come as far north as Palm Bay. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing how the Lord uh, has drawn people to our fellowship. And I, I give all that credit to God. I think that being a church that places an emphasis on fellowship and caring, and then also the Word of God being taught, that makes the difference for a lot of people. So, obviously, that's why you're here. You're here for the Word, and that's why I'm here. Um, I'm thankful for the privilege of sharing tonight. We're going to get into the Word. Let me just say before we do that, of course, uh, we're coming into Palm Sunday, and you are going to be, uh, what's the word? You're, you're going to be excited for what's going to happen. It's, it really is wonderful. Uh, we're going to start the service differently. We'll come in and we'll have a song like we always do. And then we're going to uh, be escorted out of the building, across the courtyard, and we're taking with us palm branches. And uh, we're going to have a, a music team that's going to sing, starting from the other side of the courtyard. And we're going to line both sides like a parade. And we're going to sing together. And as that group comes by, we're going to fall in behind them and go back into the worship center, recreating a sense of what it was like when Jesus entered Jerusalem to Hosanna. And, uh, and it's going to be a special service. It's going to be a great service. So come ready. We're going to have our kids kind of out there on the front end of it. They're going to, some of them will have palms. Others are going to have these little things they can, you know, the blowing in the wind, you know, and, It'll just be a fun time as a fellowship. So make sure you get there on time. Uh, not that this, this group doesn't have an issue getting there on time. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking to the wrong crowd here. Uh, you guys usually are on time. But uh, tell other people about it. And uh, let's, let's have a fun time. Then, of course, next Friday night, not this Friday, the following Friday, we have our Good Friday service right here but not inside. We're going to go, if you ever want to see it, you can walk out the doors here, turn to the left, turn left again behind this building, and you'll see an, a covered area, and then beyond the covered area, a large grassy courtyard. And we're going to actually have the, the Good Friday service on the ground, on the grass. And uh, you need to bring a lawn chair, otherwise you'll be sitting on the grass. Uh, so... We don't want to take these good chairs out and let the mud get on the, on the chairs and all. So, so everybody's responsible to bring their own chair. We'll have a wonderful time. We've invited the people of Church of Christ, the members here, to join us. I've invited one of their pastors to give an opening prayer and a welcome. And uh, we'll have a great service. Obviously, that's about the cross. And we're, we're going to have a wonderful time of communion. God really gave me an insight into communion that I haven't thought of. And... I'm excited to share it with, with everyone on that night. So, and then of course the next Sunday is, uh, a week from Sunday is uh, Easter. And what a great time that'll be. 
So, and the good news on Easter is we're going to have everybody together in one service. We're not going to go, you know, the, the temptation is to go to two services, but we're going to move all of our guest services, all of the hospitality, they're all going to go outside, and then we'll have more room to put chairs inside and, and have a service. So, amen. All right, there's a little housekeeping, giving you a, you know, you're the special crowd. You came out on Wednesday, so you get the inside, inside information. <laughs> okay, let's, let's uh, begin with prayer. We also want to welcome those who are watching by live stream tonight. I don't know what the setup looks like. I never go online and try to watch what we did. I, I just, I thank God for Brandon and Erica. They do a tremendous job for us. Yes. So we just trust, we know that they're going to do a great job for us. But uh, hope tonight you're able to, uh, to just join right in with us. Father, thank you for this wonderful setting, this, this church that has been so gracious a people that have been so gracious to allow us to come as a church and receive teaching from the Word of God. And we pray that you bless the, the Church of Christ here on 20th Street and that you would uh, be with us tonight, that we would be blessed for having read the passage that we're in and it would speak into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're in, we're in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. And of course, we're talking about Solomon. He is now the king of Israel. And just as a fore, kind of a foreknowledge for you, uh, in the kings, we're going to see a downward trend. We're going to see a falling away, Israel falling away into apostasy. We're going to see the kings that follow Solomon uh, go in a different direction. So much so, Rehoboam. Uh, that's when the divided kingdom really takes off. So right now, Solomon is over the northern part of Israel, which would be Galilee and even north of Galilee, as well as the southern part of, uh, of uh, the, the promised land. So you have the north would be uh, the, called Israel. Once the, once the kingdom divides, the north is Israel, the south is Judah. And uh, in, in the entire lifespan of the north, uh, Israel, uh, before the Assyrians come and drag them off into, into bondage, uh, they never had a single king that, was, that followed the Lord. That's how far Israel falls. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, very few kings followed the Lord. So what we're seeing right now is really, <laughs> it's, the one, it's the zenith period under Solomon's leadership. Doesn't mean that he didn't do some incredible things in terms of, of material and monetary uh, advancement for Israel, became one of the great nations on the earth, if not the greatest, really. I mean, amazing what they were able to accomplish under him. But in a spiritual sense, they were heading south. So here we go. Verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And uh, so he's a young man. Solomon at this time is probably between 20 and 25 years old. And uh, he came into the throne at what age? Remember from last week? 16 years old. So he's a little older and he's now an adult. Uh, he's able to make his choices. And so now he makes this decision to marry uh, King Pharaoh's daughter. And this is an alliance. 
by the way, marrying royalty was a common political strategy in the ancient world. And it really continued even into the modern age, even England at times, would, they would marry off a king to a princess of France or one of the situations. There are so many to draw from. So this is the kind of thing that's happening here. Uh, in 1 Kings 14, just write it down. Uh, there are times we'll turn to a passage tonight because I want you to read it with me. Uh, there are other times I just want to cite the passage so you can write it down and have it in your notes. But 1 Kings 14.21 tells us that Solomon's son Rehoboam came to the throne when he was 41 years old. 41 years old. And 1 Kings 11.42 tells us that Solomon reigned for 40 years, which means that Rehoboam was born before Solomon became king. Now think about that, okay? Uh, so uh, he, his mother was Naamah, N-A-A-M-A-H, and she was an Ammonite, an Ammonitess. And so before he came to the throne, he married uh, probably also this daughter of Pharaoh, or maybe it was after, maybe even in his 20s. The fact is Solomon had multiple marriages, that might be selling it short. He had 700 marriages. He had 300 concubines. So this man liked the lady folk. And uh, obviously, uh, the law of God, the law of God uh, was not with him in this. He is absolutely outside of God's will in doing these things, but he learned it from his daddy. David, too, had this problem. And so uh, later in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah was really angry. He was really frustrated because the people of Israel began to marry with pagan nations okay, around them. So he rebukes the guilty who have done that, the Israelites who have gone out and taken a wife from one of the nations that God drove out told them not to marry. I mean, it actually said that in the text. In, in Nehemiah 13, 25, write, write it down. And I'll, I'll just read it for you. Nehemiah 13, 25 to 27. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> Nehemiah is pretty ticked off here. Okay? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he cites an example, a bad example. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? So don't think for a second that the Bible, that God is winking at Solomon while he's taking on a thousand wives and concubines. Among the many nations, Nehemiah says, among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him sin. And shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So, uh, one of the and I think most of you, if not all of you, know this, but I think it needs to be stated. Uh, when Israel was God's nation on the earth, 
This is in the infancy. And Israel was to be a picture of the character and the nature of God to the world. In the Old Testament, it actually says that God wanted Israel to follow in his ways that his name might be great on the earth. So Israel was supposed to be a shining example of the character and nature of God. And, and yet, Israel fell into the very sins of the nations that God told them to drive out of the promised land. And, and this is the fallout. They didn't drive them all out. And the people turned away from God who gave them the promised land. And now all of a sudden, they are, they are taking these women for wives and these men, the women are going and finding a husband from other nations. Because Israel was God's picture of what God is like and who God is, he told the Israelites, do not marry someone of another nation. In that period of time when he was trying on the earth to put a display of himself through a nation, through a people, Israel. It was, it was against God's law to marry outside of your people. But that is not the case today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the Old Testament. Now it is not evil, it is not wrong to marry someone of a different culture, a different nation, a different tongue. Nowhere in the scripture in the early church do you see that being an issue. It's not. So just so you understand that, because some people will read, you know, what the scripture says in the Old Testament about intermarriage, and then they'll try to translate that or carry that into today and tell people, you, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. Totally different situation back then. Just like in the, in the book of Acts, it talks about the apostles and the ministry that they had, the the works that they did, the signs and the wonders that they performed. People today think, well, then the same thing ought to be happening the same way. No, not only does it not happen the same way as with the apostles, it's not even for the same purpose. The church has gifts, no question about that. But when the apostles were doing this, they were just trying to get people saved, to believe that God is God and come to God through Christ. So God used signs and wonders to catch the attention of people different today. Christians today are still looking for signs and wonders. Why? You're saved. You have this. What more do you need? This, this gives you everything you need to lead a life of godliness before God. And, and yet there are Christians who are still looking for the sensual, the signs. I want the five senses to, to be titillated. That's not what the scripture calls for. So anyway, that's the same thing. Some people will look at the Old Testament and try to carry it over to the New. We shouldn't do that. And this is a great example of that. Not only was Solomon a bad example, but these foreign wives, as Nehemiah said, they literally ruined his spiritual life. He didn't just marry the daughter of the Egyptian Pharaoh. By the way, this would have been the second to the last Pharaoh that sat on that dynasty in Egypt. Uh, it was coming, the, the whole Pharaoh, the, the dynasty of Pharaohs was coming to an end. But he also married women of the Moabites. He married women of the Ammonites, of the Edomites, of the Sidonians, and of the Hittites. So he didn't care where you were from. 
You, he'd marry any parasite out there. <laughs> he just went after them. He just liked the women, the lady folk. Okay? First uh, Kings 11.4. I do want you to turn here. Uh, make it First Kings 11. Verse, we'll start at verse 1 and get to verse 4. I want you to see this. This is kind of a summation of Solomon's life. And it says in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. God even gave the reason why you should not intermarry. They'll turn you. They're going to, here's, what he, here's what God is saying to Israel. They will rub off on you more than you will rub off on them. See, the temptation of Satan is, oh, you should have a relationship because you can bring them to the Lord. Do you know how many women have unbelieving husbands who started out hoping and thinking and believing that if they could somehow marry this man because he's a good man, that one day he would come to the Lord and they're still waiting. And now they're in their 60s and 70s and he still hasn't come to the Lord. And I'm not, that's not downcast. That's not saying he can't come to the Lord. I remember a gentleman on a Sunday morning who walked forward. His wife had been praying. They were in their 80s and he walked forward and received Jesus Christ. So it can still happen, but we should not take God to test in this. He says, just don't do it. Okay? In our day, it does say, don't, don't marry unequally in yoke. So don't marry someone who's not a believer. Your chance of changing them is less than their chance of changing you. When our daughter Andy was uh, in the ninth grade, entering the ninth grade, she uh, <clears throat> went to the Flick, uh, the local you know, high school. Vero has the ninth grade, uh, which is a separate uh, building and separate campus. And after a couple weeks, this is what she said to me. And Andy, at that time, really had a relationship with Jesus. And, and through middle school, she had some friends from the community and they all hung together, but Andy was solid. And so after two weeks at, at the ninth grade uh, center, uh, she came to me and said, Dad, my fear is that if I stay at the flick, then they will rub off on me. Wow. And she said to me, I want to go to a Christian school. She made the choice. And she entered the, uh, Master's Academy and graduated from Master's Academy went on to a Christian college and got her degree. And uh, so, but see, that's the point, is you don't realize how when you, when you hang with certain crowds, they rub off on you more than you rub off on them. You have good intentions, but God told the Israelites, don't even try it. <laughs> You're going to lose that battle. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened to them. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. It's not just about leaving God, it's about taking on false gods. And it says the next verse, it says Solomon, and this is 1 Kings 11, the last part of verse 2, Solomon clung to these in love. 
He had 700 wives who were princes or princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon's multiple wives did him in, in the end. While the passage says this only happened when Solomon was old, the truth is the pattern of taking on foreign wives was started early, as we see here in the text in his, in his life. Second uh, Samuel 3.3 3, uh, says, it, it tells us that David married the daughter of a foreign king. Uh, her name was Maka, and the daughter of Talmai, <laughs> the king of Gesture. And, uh, and it actually says uh, that, that he married this foreign woman, David did, but it didn't break the law of Moses because she became a convert to the one true and living God. So the, the outcome was good, but that's not the case here with Solomon. Uh, they led him away from God rather than him leading them to God. So verse 1, again, the latter, latter part of verse 1 in our text, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house. What a magnificent palace Solomon built for himself. Uh, and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So those are three huge accomplishments for Israel. They no longer need to meet at the tabernacle which was kept up at this time, I think it was at Gibeah, used to be at Shiloh, it's been several places. But now they have the temple to meet at, well, they don't have it yet, but he's going to build that, the temple, uh, which is a magnificent structure in itself, uh, Solomon's temple. And uh, then, of course, the wall surrounding Jerusalem, which is the wall that Nehemiah, after the, the uh, Babylonian captivity, uh, he came home and rebuilt that wall. Now, uh, <clears throat> old legends from Jewish rabbis say that on their wedding night, this is not biblical, so chances of it being true are slim to nil, but it's still interesting to listen to. This makes for good reading, just for fun, fictional <laughs> reading, okay? That rabbis say that on their wedding night, the Egyptian princess cast a spell on Solomon and put a tapestry over their bed that looked like the night sky with stars and constellations. So, uh, in the morning, when he awoke, uh, he waked up looking at stars in the night, and he thought it was still dark, so he went back to sleep. He finally arose at 10 a.m., and when he arose at 10, he missed the morning uh, uh, prayer and the people missed their morning prayer because he had the key under his pillow to open up the, the tabernacle for people to go and, and pray, or to not the key, but uh, for the temple, rather. Um, and so uh, finally his mother Bathsheba woke him up, you know, late, and it was a picture of how this foreign woman led him away from the worship of God. Uh, so, but he did... He was led away. That, that is true. Verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Interesting. 
So there was no house yet. There was no temple yet. And the people sacrificed at these high places. By the way, the tabernacle was taken to one of these high places. A high place, what is that? That's an open-air, hilltop worship center, okay? It's not a building, it's just a location. It has, sometimes they would have a sacrificial altar where they would make sacrifices on these high places. Where did the high places come from? When they drove out the various pagan nations, they took their high places and rededicated those high places for the worship of God and offering sacrifice. So, while there was no temple, God allowed them to use the high places to worship Him. And that's, that's why and that's how this came about. Once the temple was built, God clearly condemned the use of a high place for worship. Okay? Because if you read throughout the Old Testament, you read about high places and you immediately think of something that's evil. Because it really was. It was used for pagan worship, but not in this period of time, okay? Grace for some, somehow God showed mercy. He showed grace to Israel and he gave them these places that they could meet. Uh, now, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only, only, there, there it is, you know, it sounds, I like the first part of the verse, then he says, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, let's, let's, let's make sure we understand what's happening here. It's not that he made a sacrifice during the period of time when there was no temple, because God allowed them to do that. It's that he continued to do it after. He continued to go at times. He would go to the temple. He would make offering to God. And then one of his wives would be a little put out because he wasn't spending enough time with her, and you're not worshiping my God enough, and... He would take her up and he would make an offering to her God. Or he would go worship God in these high places, knowing, because that was her ancestry, you know, I was a Hittite and we had this high place and here, you know, crazy stuff. That's what happens when you marry unequally yoked, even in our day. That's what happens. The person you marry that's not saved, they just don't care. They don't have the same conviction about God that you do. As a believer, they, they, don't, they don't look to God as a core value in life. You do. And so there's always this rub, always this tension that you live in. And, and you're not going to change them, and they're not going to change you. So in your marriage, there is a, a level of distrust, a level of dissent, confusion, frustration, until... The Lord turns the light on in their heart and they see God the way you see God. Not because you are right, but because God is right. And God set you right. And now God is setting them right. They see it now for what it is. And it's beautiful when that happens, but sometimes it doesn't happen. I, uh, I was just called this afternoon and Someone in our church said, Pastor, I've got a dear friend, and she used to worship with us uh, over at First Church. And she's got a, a, a family member who was a drug addict and has a teenage son and a, like a six-year-old child. And she, because of all the drugs, she passed away. And it finally took her life. And 
uh, the family reached out to me and said, would Pastor Greg do the service for us? Which I said, absolutely, I, I will do it. And they, they said, well, it'll be, uh, hopefully, they're looking for the Saturday of Easter weekend. And uh, I haven't told Rini yet, but uh, if she's watching, honey, we're, I'm doing a... <laughs> but unless there's some kind of an event that I'm not aware of that's already on the calendar, I'm going to do it. But, but think about that. What do you say? That person never, never turned it around. We don't know that they, ever, that they ever turned to the Lord. So it, those are the hardest funerals to do. And I've done that for couples where one spouse is saved and the other's not. It's, so this is serious stuff. And it, it does translate into our day. And I'm not, I'm not having to convince you of this because all of you at least know of someone in this situation. Let's, go, let's keep moving if we can. Uh, by the way, God did allow prophets and kings and he allowed uh, judges before the building of the temple to make sacrifices on high places. There was a season where they did that at, at uh, uh, Gibeon. They, they did it on Gilgal. They did it at Shiloh. Remember, they took the Ark of the Covenant to Shiloh. Well, that high place was a pagan place of worship, but they dedicated it to God when they did that. God allowed it. Okay, so just to let you know that it, here in the Old Testament, God's showing mercy and grace. I, I love that. Okay, verse 4 again, Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So he would go to the high place and offer a thousand sacrifices, burnt offerings, a thousand animals. Think about that. That, that both speaks of his, obviously, clearly, he had great wealth. And secondly, he had a great heart for God. A thousand sacrifices. I mean, he must have had a really guilty conscience, I guess. I don't know. Maybe one animal for every wife. Um, there's a real good answer for all that. No, anytime there was an animal sacrifice, the law required that a portion... Oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the question was, did they burn part of the animal and eat some of the meat, or did they burn the whole animal? They would burn a portion, and the fat was to be offered to the Lord. Remember, that? Remember back when uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the priest, they would go out among the people, and they would, as the people were boiling their meat, they would go in, and they were supposed to go in and take a fork and stick whatever came out. You know, stick your fork in, whatever you, comes out, that's the portion for the priest. No, they went out and they checked it out. They looked at all the different portions. They took the choicest portion. And then when it comes to sacrifice, you would burn off the fat. The fat is where the aroma was in the meat. And the aroma was to go up to God. That was not for, uh, for, for man. And also a good dietary thing. Of course, you know, if you're having a good steak, you want a little bit of fat on it. That's where the flavor comes from, right? That's why, that's why a ribeye steak always tastes better than a New York strip. Uh, I, some of you might disagree. That's where I'm at with it. Um, but you've got to cut out the fat, you know. But while it's cooking, that fat is really flavoring that, that meat. How many of you are getting hungry right now? Okay. Yeah, Brandon's in the back going, me. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, 
So Solomon clearly loved the Lord, but that's not all that he loved. He loved these women. And uh, it's important that we not have a divided heart like Solomon. That's really what's going on here. Solomon's offering up a thousand burnt offerings to God, but Solomon also is married to a bunch of women who don't believe in his God or who want to worship their gods. So Solomon ends up with a divided, a divided mind. Uh, take your Bible, turn to James chapter 1. Let's look at this real quick. James chapter 1, verse 5. We'll skip over the part that talks about what a joy it is to face various trials and temptations. And let's get down to verse 5. When we're in trouble, when we're facing trials and temptations, James says, hey, you have a way to handle that. And here's what he says in verse 5. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom about your situation, he's been talking about problems that you face, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So God does desire for us to ask for help in our time of need, and he will come to us. He's not going to look at you when you ask him for help and say, you know, if it was three years ago, I think I would have helped you, but you have made so many bad choices, ah, forget it. You're not getting any help. God doesn't do that. It says he gives liberally, generously. Here in the text, uh, he, he absolutely gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. The wisdom you seek from God will be given. Then he says this. Now he ties the connection to following God, being about the will of God in your request. And he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If you doubt, you don't have faith to believe that God can bring you through that problem, that situation, then you're not going to receive because God, the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Verse 8, He is the person who doesn't walk in faith but doubts. Look what He calls Him. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all His ways. When it comes to the spiritual life, Solomon was a double-minded man. He had a great love for God. But he also had a great love for something that God was against, and that was taking many wives and concubines. He, he loved God and he offered a thousand sacrifices, but he also allowed his wives to worship their gods. And, he, at time, and then later, he actually followed them in the worship of their gods. So what does it mean to be double-minded? Okay, what does that mean? Double-minded means... A divided mind. You have a divided mind. You think one way when you're in the Word, when you're in prayer, and when you're with that person, when you're with that group, you think a different way. You're double-minded. Let not that kind of person expect to receive anything from the Lord. Double-minded. We should not be double-minded. So offering a thousand sacrifices was an important event marking the ceremonial beginning of Solomon's reign. According to 2 Chronicles 1, uh, verse 2 and 3, 2 Chronicles 1, 2 and 3, 
the entire leadership of the nation of Israel went with Solomon to Gibeon for this offering of a thousand burnt offerings, okay? So Solomon made these special sacrifices at Gibeon because he was the great, that was the great high place because they, don't, they didn't, that's where the, uh, not the ark, but that's where the, temp, the, the tabernacle was. No, the tabernacle was there, the ark was up at Gibeon at that time. Uh, now let's, let, let's just go back and remember in the Old Testament the events that led to bringing the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, Joshua brought both the ark and the tabernacle to Shiloh. Again, that's in Joshua 18. Shiloh was a high place. But in that period of time, God allowed it. Okay? And then in the days of Eli, the ark was captured by, the, by who? It was captured by, I believe it was the Philistines. And, uh, and the tabernacle was completely, not completely, it was wrecked. It was destroyed. Okay? Uh, you'll find that. Here, let me give you some verses on that. 1 Samuel 4. Psalm 78, verse 60 through 64, Jeremiah 7, and 7, verse 12, and Jeremiah 26, verse 9. That's where the ark was captured and, and, and the tabernacle was wrecked. And then the ark came back to Kiriath-Jerim in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 2. And then finally, Saul restored the tabernacle at Nob. Nob was another high place. That's in 1 Samuel 21. And then Saul moved the tabernacle to Gibeon. That's where it is now. That's why Solomon is going up to Gibeon to make offering before God on that high place. 1 Chronicles 16, 39 through 40. And finally, David brought the ark of God to Jerusalem and built a temporary tent to put it in. But the other tent was up on Gibeon, the tabernacle itself. So, if David brought the ark to Jerusalem, why didn't he also bring the tabernacle to Jerusalem? That's a good question. Uh, there are several possibilities for why. Let me give them to you. Number one, he may have believed if the tabernacle was there in Jerusalem with the ark, people might have settled to just go to the tabernacle and would not have wanted him to build the temple. Why do we need a temple? We've got the tabernacle. That's possible. That might be why he left it at Gibeon and didn't bring it down with the ark. Uh, the, the second is that maybe uh, the tabernacle was only moved when it was absolutely necessary as when disaster came. Because it was at Shiloh, and then they moved it to Nob, and then they moved it to Gibeon. And all of those moves were because the, the tabernacle was in danger of being, being destroyed or being uh, uh, damaged. And then uh, thirdly, um, I said Solomon, I meant David. Dave, or David's the one who brought the ark. David would have been the one that didn't bring the tabernacle. Okay? Uh, here's a third possibility. Maybe David simply focused on the building of the temple. I think that's probably the most plausible. Because the minute God said, you're not building it, David went into to a fundraising mode to raise the funds, to get all the resources necessary to build the temple that Solomon would build after David was gone. So that's probably why he left the tabernacle at Gibeon. We're not going to focus on that because we're building a temple. Okay? So let's keep moving. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. That's interesting. Uh, so in a dream at night while he's sleeping, 
God speaks to Solomon and says, ask what I might give you. So that's very interesting. By the way, this is one of the more significant dreams in the Old Testament. Let me tell you why. Because in this dream, there is a dialogue going on between God and Solomon. In a dream. They're, they're talking back and forth. So that doesn't always happen in dreams in the Old Testament. Uh, and God makes this amazing promise to Solomon in the dream. Ask what I shall give you. Uh, God seems to offer Solomon whatever he wants. That's the way you'd look at it, right? That's how you'd read this. This wasn't only because Solomon sacrificed a thousand animals. It was because his heart at that time as a young man was still surrendered to God. He was still following God. The wives, these foreign wives had influence as time went on, but early on he really was given over to the Lord. And so God was giving him something in response to his faithful obedience and worship. And the natural reaction to reading this promise of God about Solomon being, it's almost like God's a genie in the bottle here saying, Solomon, what do you wish? I'll give it to you. And we're going, man, I wish that happened in my life. That sounds pretty good to me. It has happened in your life. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus, who is God, said... Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. It has been given to you. John 15, 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Is that not the same thing? Let me give you one more. 1 John 5, 14, those of you who aren't convinced yet. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we, believers, have towards God, that if we ask anything, anything, according, according to His will, He hears us. My goodness. So let's look at Solomon's response. Because we need to understand how, how do we respond to God when He says, these scriptures to us in Matthew and in John and 1 John. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him for, uh, for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. So, man, Solomon really is thinking right thoughts, isn't he? That's a great attitude. Before responding to God's offer, he first understands, comes to remember exactly why he is the king and why God is even giving him this opportunity to ask whatever he wishes. Because my God is faithful, my God is steadfast, my God has proven himself faithful to my father David, and now he did say that I would be king and I am sitting on the throne. God has been faithful not only to my father, but to me as well. Okay, so he has this wonderful perspective of God. He viewed his succession as David's son through the Lord's faithfulness, not by anything he did to make himself king. So verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, this is Solomon asking, You have made your servant king in place of, my, of David my father, although I am but a little child. Now, that is not a reference to his chronological age. 
That is a reference to the magnitude and size of the problems and the, the needs and the leadership required to, to lead this nation of Israel. By the way, at that period of time when Solomon was king, there were four million Jews. And so this, this young guy is saying, I am, it, when I look at the magnitude of this nation and what it takes to lead them, I am nothing but a little boy. So, verse 7, I do not know how to go out or come in. You get humility in that, folks? This is not a man who thinks he has all the answers. This is a man who is reliant upon God. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. You know how, we, how I know there were four million? Because the Jewish historians, not the Bible, but the historians say that when Solomon was king, there were four million Jews. Solomon asked for more than great knowledge. He asked for understanding. We're going to see that. He didn't merely want head knowledge. He wanted a heart of understanding. We're going to see this. This is the key to lining up with God to get the answers. God wants to give answers. God wants to meet needs. He wants to help us. But he first must know that he has our heart and that we're listening to him. And that what our request is about is not us. It's not selfish. To, to, to receive from the Lord is to, to do the will of God. So the request is not about us. The request is not about the people. Solomon didn't request this because he wanted the people to get what they wanted. Solomon made the request based on what God wanted. That's how every one of you in your leadership, see, every one of you have authority in something. You have authority. You still carry authority with your children who are adults, but they're still, they look to you as a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. You don't want to come up with requests before God that are just about you, and you don't want to make the request about your kids. You want to make the request about God. What does God want for my kids? What does God want for me? This is where, this is where, where Solomon is. The ancient Hebrew word for, under, or for understanding, write this down, is literally hearing. To understand is to hear. So Solomon wanted a hearing heart, one that would listen to God. That's his request. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like a man's selfish request? Did he say that because just for the people's sake? No, he did it for God's sake. This is what I think God wants me to pray. He wants me to hear Him. He wants me to understand Him. I want to have a heart that listens to God. <laughs> and that's exactly what God gave him. In Ephesians 1.17, turn please. I do want you to turn there. We're going to look at this passage, several verses. I just think it's beautiful and I think it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 
Ephesians 1.17. Let me set it up for you. The Apostle Paul prayed for believers to have their hearts enlightened. His prayer for the believers was to have their hearts enlightened. By the way, <coughs> we, we, we tend to think of Ephesians as a letter like all the other letters that Paul wrote to churches. Uh, many scholars believe Ephesians was a little different. They believe that it was sent first to the church in Ephesus. But this letter was to be sent all over to every church. It would end up in every church. Now, nobody knows for sure, and the Bible doesn't clearly state that, so you, you can't clearly say that's what happened. But that's what they think happened, okay? So here he is, he's speaking to believers to have their hearts enlightened. Look what he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, here it is, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So in your request, what should come first? You want God's wisdom. You want knowledge. You want to understand God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us, who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. This is what Paul was praying for the believers that they would have a heart that was enlightened to understand God to know God's ways to know the position that God had given them in Christ Jesus and that they would be able to apply in their lives, lives on this earth the riches and blessings of Christ, spiritual blessings. Do you see anything in what Paul said talk about possessions and material goods and money? Nothing. It's that whether you're rich or poor, that you would know Christ and walk in the identity of your salvation. That's the greatest rich that riches that you can have. You could be a billionaire. And I've, I, I've known a couple billionaires. And one of them said to me one time, he asked me, what does it mean to give sacrificially? He asked me that question. And I told him what it meant, biblically. And he said, I've never done that. And when we walked away, I walked away with the sense he never would do it. It would cost him too much to give sacrificially. For him to lay down a million dollars was Trump, a chump change. He couldn't do it. And, 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 and the, the greatest blessing is whether you have a lot or you have a little. It's not how much you give. It's that you know who you are and that you're walking in the joy of your salvation, in the grace of God and the riches of Christ that have been lavished upon you every day thinking about that. That's what Paul's praying. That's what Solomon is asking for. I want to do this God's way. Verse 9 in our text, Give your servant, therefore, here it is, 
after reading what we read in Ephesians, tell me if there's not a similarity here. An understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. Who could possibly govern people of God? This is not just a nation. These are God's people. Who could possibly govern that? How do I discern between good and evil? Boy, I wish we had a Solomon in the in the White House today, don't you? That could discern good from evil? Good grief. And I might as well throw in all the Congress and the, and the Senate, the, the, the House, and all the state legislature and everything else. I mean, honestly, it's as if they don't, now evil is good and good is evil. It's crazy. It's upside down. So Solomon, at a young age, has already figured out that the key component of someone who's in authority... And that, by the way, could be you over your kids. It could be you uh, in a job over people, whatever the role is. Listen, the greatest thing is to have wise and just judgment. Make wise and just judgment. Discernment that reaches the heart. It's not just knowledge I have here that lets me make discernments. It's that I discern from here because God lives in here. And I, I, I want to walk in his ways. And he will give me discernment for things that I need to do. I love that. There's something here that triggers this. I love it. It's in verse 10. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. I wonder how many of our prayers as we make requests, how many times God is pleased by our request. Sometimes we, we just, we're the ones asking that are the most clueless to recognize that our prayers are selfish or that our prayers are for other ulterior motives. Do our prayers please the Lord? That's a great thing to maybe ask yourself after you come out of prayer. Before you enter prayer, Lord, I want to pray prayers that honor you, that please you. So guide me in how I how I speak in this prayer, how I re make requests. And when you're done, is to stop and say, okay, did I, what I pray, was that pleasing to the Lord? You say, well, how do you know? Hello? Did your prayer line up with this? If it doesn't line up with this, I can promise you God's not pleased by it. You say, well, I don't really know the Bible that well. That's why you're at Bible study. You're learning more all the time. Isn't that wonderful? You're not the person you were a year. If you've been coming for a year, you're not the person you were a year ago. Praise God. So God was pleased by what Solomon didn't ask for too. Not just what he asked for, but what he didn't. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for fame. He didn't ask for honor. He didn't ask for himself long life. So right prayers are never centered around selfish desires. They're also not centered in people. Right prayers are only right when they're centered in God. They begin with God, they end with God. You, you want God's will, not people's will. You know, I don't want to be the kind of leader, of a shepherd, along with the other elders. We don't want to be leaders of this flock simply trying to do what the people want. If we do that, we'll drift from the will of God. We are here to do what God wants. And we'll be, by the way, the leaders of the church will be held accountable before God, especially, the Bible says, especially those who teach. 
So the accountability on me as a teaching pastor is great. So if I make my focus to try to keep you happy, that's going to be a rough day before the Lord. I must please Him and know that as I please Him, it is what's right for you. It is what's right for me. If I had my flesh, somebody asking me to do a, a, a funeral that I don't, I don't even know the person really, and, and they're not saved, and do it on the day before Easter, the flesh would say, oh, I can't do that. No, I'm already too busy that day. I can't do it. But the Lord, I sense in my spirit as I was listening on the phone, it's like the Lord just gave me a peace in the thought, do it. Do it. And when I said, I'll, I'll be glad to do it, uh, I had a peace. I got off the phone and I had a peace. You don't have to do it in the first church, do you? I don't know where it's going to be. You've got to be careful because there's going to be 50,000 eggs being dropped over there. <laughs> better watch out if you're over there. Jerry, that's too much. I'm not going to repeat all that. Okay. <laughs> Okay, verse 12, behold, I do according to your word. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do what was right in the word of God, according to the Old Testament scripture. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor. The things you didn't ask for, I'm going to give them to you so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Now, that is not just for Solomon's sake. That's God speaking for what he wanted. He purposed to have Israel be the greatest nation, right? The one that would be the example of who God is. So that's why he blessed Solomon greatly in riches and, 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 uh, and in material things. And if you will walk in my ways, now, now a conditional statement, look at this. If you'll walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God not only answered Solomon's prayer, he answered it beyond all expectation. I love that about prayer. You know, when we set our heart to do the will of the Lord and we just say, Lord, I'll rest with whatever you want. I'll rest with that, whatever that means. And you walk away and you think, man, you know, I had such a peace in my heart about what I prayed and and it's in the Lord's hands now. And then all of a sudden, God lavishes on you something. He shows His grace and His mercy to you in some special way, you know. And you're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. But, but that's your God. That's the beauty of God. He, he surprises us with His love, with His grace, His mercy. In Ephesians 3.20, Paul honored God by saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So here is an Old Testament example with Solomon of God's ability to do far more than we can ask or imagine. That's what God did for Solomon. Well, he offers the same thing to us. Hello. Uh, we should always seek God for His character, always seek God for, for, for His will, and we should give thanks to God for the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ. Too many of us forget what we have in Christ. We forget the spiritual blessings. If you need the reminder, write this down. 
start your day with Ephesians chapter 1 and read the first half of the chapter. And that will pretty much tell you and remind you what you have in Christ Jesus. You go a little further, you can read what Paul prayed for the people, that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Okay, uh, I'm not going to read it for you, but that's, that passage is there for your own homework, and it's a wonderful way to start your day. Verse 15, and Solomon uh, awoke, so he wakes up from the dream where he had a dialogue with God. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So this conversation with God happened in a dream, but man, it really had an impact on him. And by the way, if you look at it now, apart from the spiritual life, if you looked at Israel under Solomon's leadership, it was a glorious leadership, a glorious reign that he had. Uh, yet at the same time, at the same time, uh, his end was very tragic. Uh, it's fair to say that Solomon asked for the right things, but he also wasted many of those right things that God gave him. He wasted them. Don't just point the finger at Solomon. We're probably sitting in that chair too, aren't we? The times that we've wasted the spiritual blessings that God has given us. In 1 Kings chapter 11, going back to 1 Kings, you don't have to turn, but verse 5, remember before I said 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, now verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This was the end. At the end of his life, he had gone from this place where God comes in a dream and he asked for the right things and God gave it to him. And he had this incredible reign in the material realm, in the political realm, in the, 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 the physical realm. But at the end of his life, a great cost to Israel and to Solomon spiritually. I like what one theologian said, quote, No character in the sacred writings disappoints us more than the character of Solomon. That's how far he fell. So let's pick up verse 16 and just read through this narrative, okay? We're coming to the end. What time do we have? I want to be careful there because I want to give you just a few moments to ask questions if you have any or make a comment, okay? Verse 16, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. 
But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Now, the one thing you've got to hit first and foremost in this story is that King Solomon would entertain uh, a dispute between two prostitutes. He didn't have a lower court that handled these matters. He, the king, took on these cases to try and help people. That's very interesting. So starting out, again, I think he really was applying wisdom. And God, that, by the way, he wanted the character of God to come forth in his life. And that's the character of God. God cares about everybody, right? Even if they're prostitutes, okay? They need justice. And uh, so in this case, uh, this dispute was going to be settled before the king. Uh, then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is a living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Wow. What would human health services do with that? <laughs> On the front side of this request, by the way, uh, it's hard to see any wisdom. Now, Solomon's walking in wisdom and discernment here. How, I don't see it. Sounds pretty foolish to me. I imagine the people in the court when Solomon said that, bring a sword to me. We're going to divide this boy up and give half to one mom and half to the other since they can't seem to figure out the dispute. And I imagine some people were snickering. Oh my goodness, you got to be kidding me. Uh, it looked foolish what Solomon was doing. It was only after the dispute was settled that everybody in that room went, wow, great discernment and wisdom. This man carries the character of God. And the woman whose son was alive, verse 26, said to the king, "Because oh, I'm sorry, then the king said, yeah, br uh, bring me the sword, we're going to cut in half. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. There it is. Her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. By no means put the child to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. So the wisdom of his approach was the only, uh, really, uh, only he knew what he was doing at the moment. Everybody else thought, eh, that's kind of crazy, you know. Um, you know, be honest with you, there's a lot of times where God, what he does, what he says to us, what he calls us to do scripturally on the front side looks pretty foolish. The whole concept of giving, um, I, I, biblically, the Bible does not teach tithing in the New Testament. It does not. Not after the death of Christ. But it does teach generous giving. And Hebrews seems to be a very important book that speaks to whatever we see in a shadow of the Old Testament, which would have been to give a tenth in the Old Testament. The New Testament through Christ is the substance. And Hebrews clearly says on all fronts that the New Testament in Christ is greater, it's better. What's in Christ is better than what we had in the Old Testament, which would mean that in tithing, you might be tithing a tenth, but in the new, it's generous giving. You're not keeping score. 
And at times, it's greater giving than you gave even a tenth in the Old Testament if you were faithful. And by the way, did you know that uh, Israel didn't give a tenth? Israel gave, get this, 26% annually to God. 26%. A portion was given for the priest and for those who were in need who would come to the temple for help. A portion was given as a tithe. Uh, for uh, the taking care of the priest and the, the, uh, all the utensils and the supplies for the temple. And then he put, God put a tax on Israel, a total of 26% they gave annually. Isn't that something? But when you take the concept and go to your accountant and say, you know, okay, here, here, here's what I make, and I want to give, uh, here's my bills, and, and I want to give a tenth to God. At least a tenth. Your accountant goes, okay, hang on a second. That makes, what, what are you talking about? Giving a tenth of your income. Seriously? You're going to give a tenth to that church? Seriously? Makes no sense. Sounds foolish. But when you follow God and whatever you, and I'm not pushing, I'm not pushing tithe. I'm not trying to push giving tonight. I'm not trying to make a big deal out of that. We don't make a big deal. I mean, that's between you and the, and the Lord. I do think that New Testament teaches generous giving. But when you do that with a right heart and faith, giving for the right reason, it's amazing how the Lord shows up throughout your life because of your faithfulness to Him. I've seen it over and over in my own life, and I've seen it in other people's lives. We needed a van. We had two little kids when a third on the way. And we were looking for a specific type of van, and came back from vacation and found out that there was a van like that up north uh, in Stewart, Florida. We were living in Palm Beach Gardens. And so I called the people up on a Sunday afternoon, and they said, yeah, we still have it. Uh, and they said, you know, we went away for a week ourselves. And so we probably got calls on the phone, but we haven't checked them yet, the vo voice messages. And uh, so you called, so yeah, come on up and see it tomorrow. And we went up, and the guy said, so what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, okay. And, I, and so I said, so what are you asking for? And he, he told me what he was wanting for it. And, and, uh, and, oh, no, I asked him first, what are you asking for? And he said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. He goes, okay. And I said, so what, what, what are you asking? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you tell me what you think it's worth? Now, how often does that happen? I'm a young pastor on a limited budget, living in a parsonage. I don't even have a home. No credit, no, no equity in a home yet. And I've got two small kids and a third on the way. And I, I said to him, because I want to walk in the character of God. So I said to him, you know what? I'd have to look that up. I want to find out what the fair market value of your car is. I have no clue right now, really. And so... I went home, I looked it up, and uh, a day or two later, I called them back, and his wife answered, and she said, I said, hey, this is the pastor from Palm Beach Gardens calling about your van. Oh, yeah, 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 what, what's it worth? What do you think? She's like excited to hear what I was going to say. So I said, well, here's what it says the value is, and this is what I can afford. This is where I'm at with it. This is what I can pay for that vehicle. I was very honest. I wasn't trying to rip her off, but I was just being honest. She goes, okay, that sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> I think no matter what I said, she would have done it. 
<laughs> yeah, as a, as a car guy, he said, you left money on the table. <laughs> um, but, but I went home with that vehicle knowing God provided this for my family. I did not do this. And I wanted to be faithful to God in my giving, and I wanted to be faithful in walking before him, and I wanted to walk in a way that his character could be seen, and I believe God honored that. I, I missed it many times. I still miss it. Just talk to Rini. <laughs> but that's my heart's desire. That's my heart's desire. And I think that's what God looks for all of us. So here he makes this decision, and it's the right decision. I think that's cool. And so verse 28, uh, let's just skip down. And all Israel heard of the judgment that God, that the king had made or rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. In some versions it says they stood in fear of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. He's not just another man being king. He is representing God. And I just think that's so cool. What's the result of trying to pray God's prayers and live a life that honors God? People will have a respect for you. And they will want to hear what you have to say. That's why a lot of old grandmas, their children and their grandchildren hung on their words. And you know what I'm talking about because some of you are those people that had that grandma that walked in the wisdom of God. And that's what everybody in this room ought to be. You ought to be a spiritual mother to your children and grandchildren, and you ought to be a spiritual father to your children and grandchildren. Greatest blessing that could, you could leave them is, is a picture of God. You're not a perfect picture. You're far from it. But your heart's desire is to leave that for them. And God will bless you. And uh, I'm not talking about material things. You're already blessed with spiritual blessings. I got to tell one, share one more if I could see it with my eyes watering. I can't really read that well, but this, I thought this was funny. I threw it in here. An old Jewish rabbi told this story that goes beyond the Bible, and he spun this legend about Solomon's wisdom. Listen to what he said. Ginsburg, one of the theologians, uh, is the one who records it. He said, quote, uh, telling of the time when a demon showed Solomon something he had never seen before a Cainite whom the demon brought up out of the ground, and Solomon immediately saw that he had two heads. So this demon comes up from the pit, and he has two heads. And when the Cainite wanted to return again, he could not go back to his dwelling place deep under the earth. So he married, this, this demon had two heads, married, and had seven sons, and one of whom was also, also had two heads. One son with two heads. This is weird. This is like Greek mythology, Okay. And when the two-headed father died, the two-headed son claimed a double share of the inheritance. But the other six brothers thought he should only get one share. So the Sanhedrin could not make a decision on the case, so they brought it to Solomon, who prayed for wisdom and finally poured hot water on the head of one of the two-headed demons, so on one of the heads. And both heads yelled out and screamed. And he said, okay, that's one head, that's not really two. So he divided the... Silly, okay. Probably shouldn't have, I probably shouldn't have shared that story, but I just, I got a kick out of it. I thought it was pretty funny. All right. Obviously, that rabbi was playing on Solomon's wisdom 
and what he did with the two, the two women. Questions, any questions or any thoughts that we want to share? Uh, I think it's important at the end just to take a moment and do that if you have anything. Anything at all? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they overnight. Yes, yeah, they, it would have, like Shiloh. There, there were, there were it, like a village was in that area, so they had places to stay uh, overnight in that case because he was making such a large sacrifice. Uh, think about a thousand. How long would it take you to, to slaughter and 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 sacrifice a thousand animals? Man, that's incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the whole process. Yeah, yeah, there, there were places. And I didn't say that. That's a good point. He did stay overnight, obviously, because of the dream. He, that's when he had his dream. Anybody? Somebody over here? Yes. Just in the very beginning when it said that building his own house in the house of the Lord, and then when it went down and said that there was no house yet built for the name of the Lord, what was the difference? Well, he was building. He was going to build the temple. Okay. But at that time... The temple had not been built. And Melanie, that's why he went to the high place to, to make the sacrifice. So it's, it's kind of a play there. It's kind of hard to figure that one out. But uh, that's... Until he had Yes, until he had finished it. Yeah, Kings doesn't just chronologically go from one day to the next. It, it, it'll, it'll cover several years between chapters, you know, and pick up different pieces. It's only telling us the things that God wanted canonized. The parts of the story, uh, there's so much more that happened in Solomon's life that we don't, we don't know about, but uh, that's true for any character in the Bible. Any, anyone else? Well, listen, there's still some wonderful refreshments, and there's coffee. We have decaf and, uh, and uh, water, so hang out, meet one another, talk some more. Pray for each other if somebody's in a need. Take time just to... Say, give me your hand. Let's pray right now and, and, and do that. Don't put it off. And let's minister to one another and fellowship together, okay? Lord, thank you for this wonderful night to, together as the body, just to be in your word. And I pray that you would bless each person who is here. And Lord, for the silly things that we talked about, may those things just fall away. May we really grasp the depth of what you are saying in the truth that you give us through Solomon's life both to the good and to the bad. May it be a warning for us on the bad, and may it be a blessing to us on the good. In Jesus' name, amen.